welcome to Bonnets at Dawn, the show that explores the lives and works of women writers from the 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. I am your host, Lauren Burke. And I am your host, Hannah Chapman. And today, we are going to put on our folklore cardigans and take you back to the lakes where the poets went to die. This week, we are talking about the queen of cottagecore, Dorothy Wordsworth, with Dr. Joe Taylor. I honestly thought you were going to say Taylor Swift then for a second, (laughs) but you didn't. Dr. Joanna Taylor is Presidential Academic Fellow in Digital Humanities at the University of Manchester. Her research focuses on literary geographies, spatial humanities and 19th century poetics. For the past few years, she has worked especially closely on literature of the Lake District, combining literary studies, corpus linguistics and geographical information sciences to explore this complex cultural landscape. She has worked with partners including the National Trust and Wordsworth Trust, and in particular, she collaborated with the Wordsworth Trust alongside local artists and filmmakers on the exhibition This Girl Did, Dorothy Wordsworth and Women Mountaineers. So the new Dove Cottage, the revamped Dove Cottage is now open. Um, and they've got they've done just this gorgeous job of kind of putting, of mixing everyday objects that often are the objects that Dorothy mentions in her journals um, in with um, facsimiles of Wordsworth's poems or something that Dorothy's writing alongside, cool. you know, like the stockings that she's darning mm-hmm. or... Um, uh, what else is there? There's a plaid shirt that's on the same um, same pattern as one of William's actual shirts that they've got in the, the collection. There's kids' toys and card games um, that they know that the Wordsworth kids enjoyed. Um, there is one object that they've got in there that I, I thought was really smart um, and also really demonstrates or encapsulates how kind of responsibly the trust are thinking about ways of telling the Wordsworth story in a way that's trying to situate it in um, more diverse narratives. So both in terms of race, but also um, bodily ability, um, uh, gender as as well as I guess you guys kind of picked up on this in the Dorothy episode right that it's mostly about William but Dorothy is like the difference in the last 20 20 30 years Mm -hmm. the um the kind of airtime that Dorothy gets um it's crazy um so anyway this object is a pair of sugar tongs um based on a story and that Dorothy tells in um her journal about a family who live close by who should be relatively well off really um, or at least comfortable um, but struggle financially because I think it's the mother um, is really addicted to sugar and so they're, they're buying they're buying all of the sugar which is obviously really expensive it's an import um, so the Wordsworth Trust have got these sugar tongs in one of the rooms that they can use to tell this story but also to situate that story in the context of the slave trade Lancaster at that point um had up until fairly recently been one of the major slave trading ports Liverpool just down Mm -hmm. the coast had taken over largely from um from that like and Whitehaven Maryport um up the Cumbrian coast 
um, so on the western edge of what's now the Lake District National Park, were also really centrally centrally positioned in the slave trade. Mm -hmm. The slave trade was like present in the Wordsworth's lives. And I think like that, using that object as a way of talking about those narratives and of um, interrogating where these writers sit in relation to that historical moment is I think really important um mm -hmm. and and also actually kind of like I think it's I think it's a really good example that they're setting um mm -hmm. it's a house that's predominantly focused on a 200 year old privileged white guy um mm -hmm. and I think I think they're they're pushing the boundaries of, of that kind of privilege in well not pushing the boundaries but they're exploring what that privilege meant I suppose mm -hmm. in, in ways that are quite open and I think that's that's really kind of important and admirable and more writers houses need to be doing similar things so yeah so when did you first become aware of Dorothy Wordsworth because I feel like I just became aware of Dorothy Wordsworth like two years ago and that's really sad isn't it no I don't think it's I mean I think it's it's a good sign of how rapidly things are changing for Dorothy's reputation mm, that's a good um, point so I I guess I must have known a little bit about her as a minor figure definitely as an undergrad I did lyrical mm. ballad when I was like for one of my exam texts when I was like 17 um, okay. and by the way hated it um, <laughs> studying the romantic poets was never a thing I thought I'd ended up doing it was um, I hated it when we were doing it at A level and then it was my by quite a long way, worst module at university. Mm -hmm. um, but anyway, here we are. Um, That's the... interesting. So there's a big turn for you. Well, I, I, oh, I don't, anyway, I don't know. I think I was <laughs> trying to think of the romantics in a really canonical way, in a way that just didn't really work for me. Um, mm -hmm. But the um, then I, my PhD was on the Coleridge family, so Samuel Taylor Coleridge, but mostly his children um, and okay. a little bit about his grandchildren. So Hartley Sarah and Derwent Coleridge grew up in Keswick in the house that Saudi um, lived in. So they were largely brought up by Saudi and Sarah Coleridge, their mother. And they had really close ties with the Wordsworth family. Um, when even when Coleridge wasn't there, like the families visited each other, visited each other all the time. Um, Dorothy was Derwent's godmother. Okay. Um, and was quite fond of him. Derwent was like the archetypal cute baby. He was really like chubby and attractive and he had this little cute Cumbrian accent. <laughs> um, so I think while I was doing my, for the first few years while I was doing my PhD, I was again still aware of her as there as a kind of minor, minor figure really, like somebody that I just, I just didn't really pay that much attention to. It was when I was researching Sarah Coleridge, I guess, that um, Dorothy started to come to the fore a lot more because Dorothy was a huge influence on Sarah's life. Um, first of all, a lot of the most important um, things that last about the way that Sarah has been written about will come from Dorothy. Um, and Dorothy is also a, a really important source for what we know about Sarah's life, particularly when she's still living in the Lake District. So she leaves the Lake District in 1829. So right in the early stages of Dorothy's um, illness, um, coincidentally. Uh, um, and I guess through researching this one person who was on the fringes of the Coleridge-Wordsworth circle, 
I ended up reading a lot more about this other woman who was also um, a part of that circle, but who for me, at least at that stage, I mean, for me at that stage, I suppose I thought of all of the, anyone who wasn't Wordsworth and Coleridge as being on the fringes of the Wordsworth Coleridge circle. Mm-hmm. Um, then um, after my PhD, I was, I had a job on a project that was looking at Lake District writing. And over the course of that project, started to realise how central Dorothy is for an alternative way of reading the Lake District that's not what you get in, or that's more complicated than what you get in the tourist guides and travel narratives from the 18th and 19th century. And that while it's similar to the way that Wordsworth writes about the Lake District, it's really distinctive. And I think that's why I hadn't fully appreciated that they're, they're similar, but they're so different at the same time. Um, and that they provide really different views um, of, of this one small valley in ways that I think are, are really revealing about what we've inherited about our ideas of landscape and nature. What I find really interesting about Dorothy is what our understandings of those concepts and these places might have been and might still be if hers is the voice that's emphasized. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, so we, I, um, I've done over the last couple of years more research into women um, women in upland landscapes, particularly women's walking in, um, in upland landscapes, women's mountaineering. Um, partly coincided with me, I suppose, getting moving to Lancaster and so spending a lot more time walking in the same kind of places, mm-hmm. getting a bit sick of hearing myself say what I would say at the top of mountains and needing a bit <laughs> more variety in my quotations. Um, so, um, so I guess through through that work, I became more aware of Dorothy as a pioneering walker as well as and I, I guess that made me more aware of the fact of the way that she's a pioneering writer as well and made me appreciate her much more as an autonomous individual rather than somebody who's only a relation of this important guy. Um, and now it's a hill on which I will happily die that Dorothy should be easily as read as uh, William, if not in these times in which we find ourselves more so. I think yeah. she's kind of the lockdown writer that we all need. I've definitely found a lot of solace rereading her over lockdown. I feel like people people are very passionate about Dorothy Wordsworth too. She like the people it. that love her, like really, really, really love her. She's had 200 years of neglect and all of it, <laughs> every single second of that was not worth it. Um, so yeah, I feel like she's, she's the kind of writer that once you start reading her and kind of getting I think firstly because her writing like the journals are so or feels so personal right so mm-hmm. you you feel like you're really getting to know her um you mm-hmm. feel like you're given a window into her, her her really personal world um so it's not just that you you kind of see the things that she sees with her it's the way that she writes her journal structures her sentences you can feel the things that she's feeling um and um I get down to the the kind of rhythms of her 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 bodily cycles and um aches and pains and things and I think all of that really matters for the way that we kind of empathize with her connect with her um and I I mean I I, I kind of wonder if there's a sense that we all feel that we're slightly on the fringes of something and so 
reading this woman who is is so clearly so brilliant in her own right, but that's also been treated as being on the fringes. There's something I guess can maybe consoling about about that. I agree with that. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think I guess this is kind of what I mean about her being like the ideal the writer that we all need in lockdown. Um, that she's so concerned with being in a place and and kind of it's kind of beyond feeling part of it even it's kind of becoming part of it really absorbing a place's rhythms um its motions and and so kind of getting absorbed into the landscape there's this there's this uh, journal entry that I really love where um she and Mary uh William's wife have gone they're supposed to be gathering mosses um, up in Easdale. Um, so maybe a, maybe a 20 minute walk from, um, from Dove Cottage. They go to gather mosses. They don't quite get around to it because they're chatting. She has to go back the next day and actually get the mosses. Um, mm-hmm. But they, Dorothy describes how her and Mary walk backwards and forwards up and down um, across, um, across this space until the light fades um, and all they can hear is the nearby stream and as the light fades it's like the mountains get absorbed into the sky but it's also like they're getting absorbed into the into the mountains into the sky they the darkness kind of envelopes them all in this mm. in this one moment that walking backwards and forwards um, thing is something that Dorothy does throughout her career it's actually this is one of the things that I find really fascinating about Dorothy is that she, her revelations, revolutions are, are not, they're not huge. Like mm-hmm. they're really domestic in nature, but they're really important. Like just because they're small doesn't make them, I don't think any less significant than the stuff that um, her male contemporaries, including her brother were doing. One of Dorothy's uh, really key practices was this walking backwards and forwards in a in quite a small space she starts when she's really young so she's she's a huge she's a big walker throughout throughout her life when she's in her 40s she's still bragging bragging uh, in letters that she can walk four miles an hour which over upland terrain in the Lake District like that's hella impressive yeah that um, is. so she's really proud of the fact that she she um she can walk so much she walks easily as much as William does so um it it's she she definitely keeps pace but she walks by necessity in a slightly different way at certain points in her life so when she's um a young woman living in um Penrith and Halifax with relatives she develops this habit of in the garden walking backwards and forwards just up just up and down the garden because she can't go out she can't go out without a chaperone um, she can't go wherever she likes, but she still, she has this like physical, mental need to to walk, right? To feel that that particular rhythm of her body in motion, um, and so she does it backwards and forwards in her garden. And she introduced when William comes to stay with her, and I, I think it's either seventeen eighty nine or seventeen ninety one, um, seventeen ninety one, I think she, she introduces him to this practice. She calls it. Um, of walking up backwards and forwards in in the garden it's that practice that walking backwards and forwards that William later adopts to compose pretty much all of his important verse like that's how he writes walking okay. backwards 
at Dove Cottage on the Orchard Path. Um, he has a few other favourite spots in the various places he lives. So at Rydal, there's a similar kind of path on the, um, there's a kind of bridge in the garden um, that he, he did the same thing on. That's Dorothy's practice and it infiltrates everything William Wordsworth writes. It's that walking backwards and forwards mimics or picks up in some way on those lines of poetry. You think of every line of poetry being a walking forward or a walking backwards. It's a really rhythmic, like almost like a metronome way of, of walking, of feeling really, really kind of steady. So even anyway, even when Dorothy gets the freedom to be able to walk much further and walk where she likes up into the hills off on her own, there's still something about this practice that I think she finds necessary and soothing. So um, hence going with, with Mary and ended up walking backwards and forwards across Easdale. It's that particular habit of, um, of walking out, walking back, inscribing and re-inscribing the same pathways that she seems to find so powerful and becoming part of, of this landscape and in allowing the landscape, I guess, to become a part of her. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, and the way she describes it particularly I think in the journals is just so compelling um, that sense of I guess I guess what would look to us like wasted time right like walking backwards and forwards across the same place she's not going anywhere she's not trying to get anywhere new she's trying to absorb the same place really well mm-hmm. um, over lockdown of when none of us could go out or go very far that pattern of walking backwards and forwards seemed so important and also that Dorothy is a really good guide I think as to how we can learn to love and and know in new ways I guess the spaces that are right on our doorsteps these little spaces like our gardens um or even our living rooms um these these small spaces that we see every day that are so familiar but there's there's not the kind of push constantly for novelty I guess in Dorothy's journals like what Mm -hmm. what matters to her is connection a, a relationship companionship communion with these places that she comes to know really well I've been running this pretty much the same route over lockdown and walking the dog in the same places day after day after day like sure you could like there's one reading of that that where it's completely boring and you're seeing the same things all the time mm-hmm. in another way though you if you're looking for new things you see new things every time you walk the route you see you know a different bird in a slightly different place or mm-hmm. you see the migrations happen the, the river tide is at a slightly different place or it's in or the river or the lake in Dorothy's case is in a slightly different mood um mm-hmm. it's you know calmer or rougher or, or whatever that might have reflections in the way that you're feeling um mm-hmm. as well and then just being being much more attentive to the way that the leaves shift color throughout the season not yeah. just at kind of keystone moments that we all know where we all know the leaves change and the leaves fall um I think I think there's there's a really powerful sense in writing like like that that we find in Dorothy's journal of kind of reevaluating our relationship with the places around us mm-hmm. that's not about where it's not about going to as many places as possible and 
travel's great and Dorothy also enjoys a bit of travel but there's <laughs> there's still this really deep-seated and meaningful joy to be found in the places that you can go to every day yeah i i think gardening has got like me there and that appreciation right. too i think so Dorothy, yeah mega gardener of course um she like, she, yeah of course um she's very proud of her vegetable patch um she um really into it she spends a lot of time in her journals watering her garden um mm. like there's so many so many entries that are went for a walk came back watered the garden made an apple pie um pro tip by the way if you're reading dorothy's journals and you're hungry make sure you've got an apple pie on hand because the woman <laughs> eats a lot of apple pies and well, she's doing all that um, walking so she totally earns it oh she she completely earns it but like <laughs> reading reading those journals if you're a bit peckish makes you want nothing more than an apple pie <laughs> i um I will keep that in mind next time, actually. That sounds great <laughs> to me. Now, I was just uh, checking to see if, um, was that your favorite journal entry that you were just speaking about? Or is this a it was, it could different? Have been. Okay, yeah. What is your your favorite Wordsworth entry? Um, Dorothy Wordsworth so, entry. I don't know what it is about this entry quite. Well, I kind of mm. do. Um, so this journal entry is from the 31st of January, 1802. So this is about 10 months before William gets married. So at this point, it's mostly just the two of them um, living at Dove Cottage, although they, they get quite a lot of visitors, as you'll see in this. Um, Coleridge spends a lot of time with them and the Hutchinson family, um, the family that Wordsworth, William Wordsworth is about to marry into. They spend quite a lot of time here as well. But at this particular moment, um, it's William and Dorothy are, um, are by themselves um, and William's having a bit of a, a hard time at this point with um, he's, have, he's, he's in the middle of a bit of a difficult relationship with his poetry. So this is Sunday 31st of January 1802. Dorothy writes, William had slept very ill. He was tired and had a bad headache. We walked around the two lakes. Grassmere was very soft and Rydal was extremely beautiful from the pasture side. Nabscar was just topped by a cloud, which cutting it off as high as it could be cut off made the mountain look, look uncommonly lofty. We sat down a long time in different places. I always love to walk that way because it is the way I first came to Rydal and Grasmere, and because our dear Coderidge did also. When I came with William six and a half years ago, it was just at sunset. There was a rich yellow light on the waters and the islands were reflected there. Today, it was grave and soft, but not perfectly calm. William says it was much such a day as when Coleridge came with him. The sun shone out before we reached Grasmere. We sat by the roadside at the foot of the lake, close to Mary's dear name, which she had cut herself upon the stone. William cut at it with his knife to make it plainer. We amused ourselves for a, we amused ourselves for a long time in watching the breezes, some as if they came from the bottom of the lake spread in a circle brushing along the surface of the water and growing more delicate, as it were thinner and of a paler colour, till they died away. Others spread out like a peacock's tail, and some went right forward this way and that in all directions. The lake was still where these breezes were not, but they made it all alive. I found a strawberry blossom in a rock. The little slender flower had more courage than the green leaves, for they were but half expanded and half grown, but the blossom was spread full out. I uprooted it rashly, and I felt as if I had been committing an outrage, 
so I planted it again. It will have but a stormy life of it, but let it live if it can. We found Calvert here. I bought a handkerchief full of mosses, which I placed on the chimney piece when Calvert was gone. He dined with us and carried away the encyclopedias. After they were gone, I spent some time in trying to reconcile myself to the change and in rummaging out and arranging some other books in their places. One good thing is this, there is a nice elbow place for William and he may sit for the picture of Paul Bunyan any day. Mr. Simpson drank tea with us. We paid our rent to Benson. William's head bad, William's head bad after Mr. Simpson was gone. I petted him on the carpet and began a letter to Sarah. What I really love about this entry, well, there's several things to love about this entry, I think. Um, one of the things that I really love about this entry is the fact that it it kind of brings together all of these things that we get familiar with throughout Dorothy's journals. So um, firstly, and maybe most obviously, that really deep care she has for um, for William. So she's so attentive to the fact that he's he slept badly. I mean, she would know the walls of Dove Cottage were very thin. Um, they, as they will tell you when you go to Dove Cottage, the walls weren't kind of plastered over or, or anything. So the likelihood is that you'd have been able to, to pretty much see through them. It's more like wooden partitions than actual walls. So really little privacy. So William's not slept very well. She knows that therefore he's tired and um, and is not feeling very well in, in other ways. So she's really attentive to him throughout throughout the course of the day and so much of her day is spent in making sure that she feels all right that he feels all right so at the beginning of the day the first thing she writes notes about this day is that he's feeling ill it's almost like his physical state really defines the whole day for her um and then in the evening William's head is still bad so she pets him on the, the carpet she puts aside anything else that she's um she's interested in doing to focus all of her attention on giving him the love that he clearly feels like he needs in that moment I feel like throughout these journals William emerges as a bit of a baby um like he's like full power to him when I'm ill I also want lots of hugs and um looking after William is definitely a high maintenance patient um but there's there's also as well as William you get this real sense of how bustling Dove Cottage is at this time so um Calvert's there then Mr Simpson comes over they they pay their rent to Benson you know it's this is a it's a busy house this is not a poet wandering lonely as a cloud this is a, a man really involved in his um in this domestic setting one of the things that I find really fascinating about the relationship between Dorothy's journal and the way that those entries are reimagined in William's poetry is that William is talking to this kind of um is representing the poet as as this solitary figure, this what Kathleen Jamie has called of more recent nature writing, the lone enraptured male um, striding through the landscape. Dorothy makes it clear that William was as involved in the family as you kind of have to be if you live in a tiny cottage with see-through walls. Um, that that actually there's is there's is a pretty sociable life, and and I think what's really one of the things that deserves more. Um, kudos, I guess, is that that's that's all right. That's a good way of, of writing this. That there's there's nothing to be ashamed of in writing as part of this busy domestic life. I mean, I don't know about other people, but I definitely think it's also good if you are able to write as part of 
when loads of other stuff is going on. The thing that I really love about this journal entry, though, is the way that she describes the landscape. Um, so that moment where she's talking about the breezes on the lake um, spreading out like a peacock's tail. She's so vivid. You can you can imagine. So this is we're in January, right? So the colours in the Lake District in the winter are, I think, in some ways more beautiful than in the summer. The summer's greenery is lovely. But the colours of the Lake District in the winter are so complex. You can see the shape of the mountains in a way that you can't in the summer. Um, the browning of the bracken, the old heather, um, the lakes um, pick up the colour of the sky, of course. So they vary between these kind of steely greys and um, quite, I guess, deep, complicated blues. It's, it's a kind of magical place, I think, in the winter. That image of the peacock's tail, I think, really, really vividly picks up on all of those different hues that Dorothy's seeing reflected in the lake water, but also the the kind of performative motion of it, right? Like a peacock's tail is there to draw attention to itself. So the lake seems to be kind of putting on a show for them at this at this point. It's one of the it's one of the moments that you get a lot in Dorothy's journals where it's almost like she's in in some kind of conversation with the lake. And the lake's sort of talking back to her in the only way that it can, by rippling at her. Um, she also, I think this, the what this description also does is highlight the, the kind of interconnectedness of the lake's ecology, I guess. So the, the connection between the wind and the waters, the deep water and the surface, um, and the way that, that that moves, the way that that's all blended together and the way that Dorothy kind of feels part of all of that movement so it's not the lake in Dorothy's journals never just a lake it's it's never just a, a straightforward body of water it's always a kind of collective of water with complex characteristics of its own and then that's that moment where she picks up the strawberry blossom um acknowledging the strength of a slender flower having more courage than the green leaves um Firstly, there's there's a lovely message in in this moment about treating all nature, great and small, with respect. Not pulling out a flower because it's pretty and will make our um, fireplaces look nice, but letting it live a full life. Um, so, like beauty shouldn't be a reason for Dorothy to disrupt that life. But there's also, I think, almost. I think it's dangerous saying that this is this is a kind of um, feminist reading, but I guess is it dangerous? So my my impulse with this with this moment is to think about it in a kind of feminist way. So what the implication of this is that the leaves and the stem are the parts of the flower that are considered um, strong. Like they're the things that root root the plant into the ground. You know that that they the functional, I suppose, parts of the um, flower parts of the plant whereas the flower is at least considered to be more decorative um, or represented as being more decorative but in this instance this little slender flower has more courage than the green leaves the the leaves are half expanded and half grown but the blossom is spread full out there's such courage in in that flower and I feel like there's um the way that Dorothy writes it in imparting that courage onto the flower is really significant 
that she's not she's not what she's not said is there was a strawberry plant some of it looked a bit dead but it also had this really nice flower she's giving it really human characteristics recognizing in the flower this struggle for life but also recognizing that something that looks little and slender can be so powerful um and i think moments like that make Dorothy feel so pertinent to um to our lives today I think there's just there's just these moments where there's there's this real crossover um and I think those those kind of those moments where she's in a landscape that we can still largely visit today um firstly but having these moments with with one plant like this is, these are moments that are open to all of us, whether or not we live in the middle of a national park or um, or in the middle of a, a city. Like these are, are moments that are available to us if we pay attention to the weeds that we walk past. You know, like there's um, that recognition that, that there might be courage and beauty if we know how to look for it. And I, I feel like Dorothy offers such pertinent lessons for how we go about looking for that, that we don't, we're not necessarily taught. So she starts writing these journals for William when he, he goes away. Um, and she wants to keep a record of her daily life for when he gets back, partly to record these sense impressions that she knows he finds helpful for his poetry. So she's, she's really deliberately doing it in a way that he can pick up in his descriptions. Um, so she records the people that she meets, um, particularly if they're in interesting interesting living um living situations which leads to poems like the leech gatherer the cumberland beggar discharged the discharged soldier um the female vagrant like these these kind of vignettes so she's she is being really careful to i'm really self-conscious about a certain kind of what i'm tempted to call lyrical description because she knows that they'll contribute to the lyrics that williams then writing so they are different in kind to private entirely private yeah. novels but they're not really in mind as well yeah she's not writing for herself um or she's not only writing for herself can you tell us about women in the hills love so, like, to how did that get started so, what is it what does it mean to you all all the big stuff yeah so women in the hills is an arts and humanities research council funded network on um women in the hills uh, over the last 200 years. So from about 1800 to uh, now. Um, when we've, uh, we've been talking about setting up this network for about 18 months, um, the network formally launched in, I think at the beginning of February this year. Okay. And then three weeks later, nobody could leave the house anymore. So um what the network was going to look like and what the network actually do look like now are two different things and also I mean this year right has has changed all of our opinions so much on the kinds of questions that we need to ask and and also what, what our relationships relationship is with the outdoors so one of the things that we're doing at the moment is working out how we can um get use the network to both explore these historical experiences of women like Dorothy um, 
and also embrace this new world in which we find ourselves when for all of us um our relationship with the outside world has changed but obviously that difference is more pronounced for some um and as has been well documented over the course of this pandemic that's a distinctly gendered reassessment of space um so women in in the hills anyway is um it's a network that's aiming to both highlight the historical experiences of women in the hills to re-inscribe them onto this landscape that they've, where they've always been but about whom we've not heard enough right we always hear about the impressive male mountaineers doing whatever it is they do um what we don't hear about is the fact that the women were there with them so for example there is a um women, a female mountaineer in um she publishes uh, an account in i think it's 1884 um she's called Elizabeth Leblond and she's gone to Switzerland for her health um she's been advised that she she might benefit from the climate she understands that as um well I should go and climb all the significant peaks in the Alps then shouldn't I um she's doing this she's making some pioneering ascents um of the Alps at the same time as this i think it's an italian um group led by quite a famous italian male climber and she's basically trying to pip into the post at all of these ascents and she's very she's very funny about it um she's um she really plays off the idea that women are supposed to be you know the weak and feeble sex um so she she tells stories about having to kind of take off these skirts that were just really getting in her way and hiding them behind a boulder and she loses it one day um and so they have to walk into town just in their underwear um there's another moment where they get to the top of one of the peaks um and there's a collar kind of um ravine um that the guides are all looking over in a really worried way and she basically says like I went over I had a bit of a look I thought it was fine so I had a glass of wine I just <laughs> she's so so performatively blase about it it's voices like that that we wanted to use this network to um to highlight so we wanted to think about the ways that women's experiences in the uplands are distinctive from men's that's not to say less valuable than men's um the opposite in in some ways um we wanted to to try and draw out women's experiences in the hills as a sort of counter narrative to that accepted predominantly male one to ask what new things we can learn by highlighting women's voices both in terms of what new things we can learn about the past of um and the the history of of mountaineering and walking but also what those lessons might mean for our future engagement with the the way that we treat and manage these landscapes that are often quite vulnerable right um i mean particularly now even I mean, even places like the lake districts um the way that the landscape is married managed is really contentious so we wanted to ask a few we wanted to use the network to ask a few kind of key things so um really importantly what has meant that women haven't or might not have traditionally felt able to explore uplands in the way that men might have done um and conversely what what factors have meant that women have been able to to do that so for Dorothy Wordsworth for instance she was able to walk as much as she liked because she chose not to get married 
and so lived with her brother had the joy of watching a family of children grow up but crucially if she didn't really feel like it that day could leave and go for a walk um so so we wanted to ask about the what had um had helped and hindered women's access to the landscape what the consequences of the fact that these uh, that women's voices have been historically marginalized have had for both who partakes in in upland activities now and how we think about the uplands more generally um and how we might use historical accounts to reinvigorate conversations about um improving women's access to um to the hills and we are back great interview thank you so much lauren and joe I thought that the description that Joe gave about retreading the same places again and again in lockdown and then how Dorothy was retracing her steps and revisiting the the same landscapes really struck me. So this was actually one of the first writing practices they tried to drill into us when I was doing my master's, like go find a place and just write there, like specifically in the same mm-hmm. place every day just for a bit because they wanted us to stop focusing on like the newness of our surroundings and then focus instead on the newness that time introduces to a familiar place, like the changing of leaves or like the slight changes in schedule that you might see if you're watching like the same people again Mm -hmm. and again, because also like we can't all live in the Lake District. Right. (laughs) I live on a grotty street, like I've got to find something to... (laughs) (laughs) to observe I guess and so I think what I found really interesting was actually when you then spoke about your garden and like how you appreciate Mm -hmm. that time and not to like tell you what to write or anything but if you were like trying to get back into your journaling then you could start with your garden because that's somewhere that you spend a lot of time in day by day and it has these things that like actively you're nurturing and growing and seeing change Mm -hmm. whereas I just shit talk in my journal and I just sit at my desk yeah, and I just yeah, write yeah. shit about people. <laughs> and I write little notes to Sam because I think he's reading it. So I'm like, Sam, I can't believe you're reading my journal. <laughs> <laughs> you are like a total Dunbar Nelson then. In yeah, that that's way. me. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I do also think that maybe I need to just like go and chill out with my mum in Whitehaven in Cumbria for a bit and just like look at the scene. <laughs> write about that. I don't know. Now, I do want to say that you guys can find more information on Women in the Hills at womeninthehills.co.uk. And um, I also just, yeah, again, thank you, Joe, for joining us. That was such a cozy and calming Mm -hmm. interview, which I thought was maybe really needed for this week. (laughs) And I think Joe as well is a poet because her descriptions of the lakes and it was like, I can't remember what the like the curious blue of the mountains or it was something like that. Yeah. Probably better. But like, you know, I was just really struck by that too. And I was like, Dorothy, is that you? Yeah. Is that you creeping in there? Um, I, that whole interview did make me want to recommit to my journal. I mean, I think what's, what's funny about like what's going on in my diary is that it's all broad strokes Mm -hmm. and like these big entries when something eventful happens, but I do want to like take it back and make and get more granular and 
that's something I really appreciate about Dorothy Wordsworth and like what she's doing with some of her entries. So some of her entries are super short and they almost add up to like a little poem when you look at like the whole week. So these entries are all from uh, the spring of 1798, starting at the end of March. 28th, hung out the linen. 29th, Coleridge dined with us. 30th, walked I know not where. 31st, walked. 1st, walked by moonlight. I mean, that is a found poem, Lauren. I think legally you can publish that. Okay, I'm You'd doing it. You'd have to credit it, but I think you can. You <laughs> yeah, found it. This is, this is by Dorothy Wordsworth. I used to, there was like a church outside, just outside of the stately home that my university campus was in. And I used to go mm-hmm. to like their lost and found and like notice board. And I would just write that down because we almost always had like a found poem assignment and that church notice mm-hmm. board. Oh man, Perfect. I got the goods every week. It was so good. There was one bit and it was like just talking about badges like shitting on the graves. And I was like, <laughs> excellent, poem. thank you. Found poem. One of the other things I really loved about the interview was just the how objects are referenced in the diaries and then how they're being uh, interpreted and then included in the displays at Grasmere Wordsworth, like mm-hmm. the stockings that were being darned. Like love an object story love when you can like introduce those aspects although I think it's our good friend Amy Rowbottom that was laughing about how like all of the Bronte's day underwear is just on display and how upset they be about that (laughs) (laughs) um there is so there is a line from a journal entry dated April 16th which she notes was Good Friday in 1802 when Dorothy was in her very early 30s. I think she was either 30 or 31. I pulled off my stockings intending to wade the beck, but I was obliged to put them on and we climbed over the wall at the bridge. And it's like, there's nothing to it really. It's just like a throwaway line in like a much longer paragraph. But for me, here we have Dorothy, who's not just like an observer of nature or her surroundings, but she's someone that's like actively joining with it. And she pulls off her stockings, which I think it sounds so daring, like considering the mm-hmm. time she's got this intent to like wade through the back and then she doesn't, but she doesn't say why. So then, you know, she puts them back on and then she like climbs over the wall and it's just there's so much action and like personality in there that like in public mm-hmm. she'd like strip down it seems so intimate and then there's like this unseen force that's like making her put them back on and kind of give up on this like desire that she had to go in the water and I just was so compelled by it and then she also says and I just really love this line um she just says like I hung over the gate and I thought I could have stayed forever and it's just so wistful. I just feel, I yeah. I don't know, Dorothy in her early 30s, I relate to that. I love that line. I think it's beautiful. And she says so much and says so little at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> Which is, I mean, that's such a gift. Um, so I was doing this thing earlier this week where I started poking around a bunch of like articles, academic and otherwise, about Dorothy. And... I saw one mm-hmm. that said maybe she had some feelings for Coleridge. And I wasn't sure because this is nothing I had heard before. And we have talked to three women who 
like ex- like just are all about Dorothy and they're mm-hmm. all in there and they like dedicate no their lives to studying it. Dorothy. And I was like, no one has said that to us. So I didn't. Yeah, I didn't think that that was quite right. Um, but it was in my mind when I read this entry, which I think is so romantic. So it's from April 2nd, 1798. A very high wind. Coleridge came to avoid the smoke, stayed all night. We walked in the wood and sat under the trees, the half of the wood perfectly still, while the wind was making a loud noise behind us. The still trees only gently bowed their heads as if listening to the wind. And it's just so romantic. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Like, I can kind of, I can understand why William was so inspired by all of her work, because even if, you know, there there is no sexual tension between her and Coleridge here, it just does paint this really sexy scene for me that I can go and like use as inspiration to go write my own romance novel. It's so funny because there's that one like os- line from an Austen letter where she's like, Edward ordered butter crumpets, which are my favorite. <laughs> That's obviously <laughs> like an ad lib. I think his name is like Edward Bridges. It might not have been crumpets. I can't remember, but it's like he orders her favorite food. It's like a throwaway thing. Mm-hmm. And everyone's like, she loved him. <laughs> he ordered that. And then we've got like this beautiful passage in comparison. <laughs> this it's was like so- yours and my diaries. I'm like, oh, he ordered me a crumpet. <laughs> and I'm like, ooh, Coleridge came out of the mist and they like sat in the trees and he stayed all night. And what were they saying? That's the other thing. She doesn't talk, like say like, anything about what they talked about too and I just I think that adds to the mystique where I'm like I just want to know I think mates can hang out in the wood after dark at night with no one else around I mean yes they absolutely can but it is sexy it is sexy (laughs) (laughs) so okay so gorgeous entry and I of course wondered whether or not there were some underlying feelings and because I am who I am. I then sent Rachel Fetter, our guest from last week, a DM um, that said, hey, did Dorothy have feelings for Wordsworth? And then I clarified and I said, sexy time feelings. (laughs) And um, this is her response and it's a great response. And she did say, you can quote me on this. (laughs) So... I have her permission to read these DMs. Um, I don't think so. If she had feelings for anyone else in the circle, I would put my money on Mary or Sarah Hutchinson, who I totally think had a thing for Coleridge, by the way. When it comes to the mysteries of her romantic life, it's most likely either that marriage wasn't something she was interested in or that marriage was something that she was willing to give up for the actually quite unusual situation in which she found herself one in which she was valued as a member of the intellectual and creative community and was one of the team of women managing the home and was able to be close to children without the discomfort of a 19th century pregnancy or the potential of dying in childbirth. As far as life for women in Romantic era England went, she actually had quite of a real intimate companionship and creative encouragement and intellectual and emotional and logistical freedom That's why I get so frustrated by all the readings of her as in love with her brother. Like, no woman's life could be complete without a man. To choose this creative, companionable life 
in the natural world, she must have been so secretly miserable because phallus or whatever. The rumors were anti-feminist then, and they are anti-feminist now. And you can totally quote me on this because I have big feels about it. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I agree. And there's always like, (laughs) that always has to be like a reason why someone never married. And like mm-hmm. some like unrequited thing. Yes. Like it can never just be like the choice to be not in a relationship. Like maybe even the opportunity came up. Maybe mm-hmm. she wasn't interested. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think, yeah, Rachel, I think Rachel's right saying that it's like anti-feminist. I agree. <laughs> I do too, which is why it didn't, I didn't give it much credit. When I first read it, I didn't even save the article that I read it in. But then when I read, I came across that entry, I was like, oh, so what was I happening in the woods? I don't think it's anti-feminist to like read it and be like, ooh, is this, cause it, there's a mood, like I get it. Mm-hmm. I think it's, it's when you like refuse to let go of that and you're like, no, no, but there yeah. must be something. And that's when it's an issue when you can't like put that aside. Like there's nothing mm-hmm. wrong with reading something and being like, ooh, I wonder if like, what's happening here you know mm-hmm. now lauren you um shared an article with me from the wordsworth circle written by pamela woof titled dorothy wordsworth storyteller and it's an exploration of wordsworth's dorothy wordsworth letters and journal entries and then the narratives that you can find there and if you guys want to go and read this which you should it is available from mine and lauren's favorite J store. And I was really glad you sent this over. I loved it. And I actually, I felt like it was written especially for us because it comes in hard with comparisons to Austin and Bronte, just in like the first paragraph. Yeah, that's what caught my eye, honestly. (laughs) And in, it says that in eight, it says in 1787, a then 16 year old Wordsworth writes to a friend and then her description of herself my whole person, the picture of poverty, as it always is in a bedgown, feels so much like Austin. Like, it's so funny. And mm-hmm. I just wasn't expecting that. That was a real treat to just see that right at the start. There's uh, so many good little one-liners that Dorothy's got in those letters. There's another one that caught my eye um, was when Dorothy wrote to her friend Catherine after her move to Rydal Mount. And she said, you know, there's no time to read newspapers, but murders, we do read. And <laughs> like, got to keep up on the murders, though. Um, so I know that's morbid, but it's like totally something I would say. Um, but truly, my favorite quote from this article was, as a storyteller, the tenor of Dorothy's writing is not towards invention, but towards accuracy, which brought her whole imagination into play. And I love that because um, I think this is something I was thinking about quite a bit during that interview is like, there can be imagination and romance in accuracy. Yeah. Yeah. Which sounds so obvious when I say it, but I think that maybe as writers, sometimes we're trying to go big into fantasy and go out, like outstretch out, our, outside ourselves if that makes any sense it does trying to reach into bigger worlds instead of like being back here and like taking inspiration from what's in front of us i think that's interesting because one of the things the article did for me was it it actually 
really helped me just reconsider that relationship between William and Dorothy and the relationship between their writing because Mm -hmm. there's several accounts in the article where William is specifically asking Dorothy to recount stories of people that she's met. And then she does this with this keen eye for detail and accuracy, which he then uses as the jumping off point for something he's working on. And Mm -hmm. I know in our last episode about Wordsworth, we were kind of like, we were comparing like her journal entry with his poem and I prefer Dorothy Wordsworth. Mm -hmm. I'm not biased guys, like that ain't it. (laughs) But I think what this made me realise was that um, there's a description of how the stories of people in distress, which is something he was asking her to write, it stops appearing in her journals and in her private writing because in 1802, uh, William had finished the preface for lyrical ballads and the second edition had been published. So she was done with that. He was done with it and so she was done with it. He didn't need it anymore. And what is interesting about that for me is that she doesn't actually stop writing when he doesn't need her to. She's writing all of the time. It's just she's she's kind of like help like it's in a response to that yeah it's like a two-way street she does stop writing when she's busy doing life things like you said uh like rachel was saying you know she was in that active household she had the joy of being around children without being a mother herself and that was a time when she wasn't writing as much but it does meander around the things that she finds interesting and the things that william finds interesting and I think that there's almost this acknowledgement from him that she has the greater ability to preserve things until he's ready to use it. And then mm-hmm. he does what you were just describing, where he's then taking it into these more abstract, you know, and the article says again yeah. and again that he, like all of her accounts that you can then find in his writing, the the people that Dorothy is writing about are kind of almost pushed to the edge, but then William is in it, like... I just, it's so interesting. Um, yeah, I, I think that was the other thing that the article did for me was really help me understand their partnership. Mm-hmm. Partnership, um, yeah. And I, um, because I, you know, I like writing with a partner. And I think that as writers, we also do need to acknowledge like where our weaknesses are and no. where our strengths are. I and <laughs> what's great about these two is they really seem to have that understanding, right? And then they yeah. really just paired well together. Yeah, and like I and I think the fact that her work isn't preserved or remembered or hasn't been in the same as Williams is not about William and Dorothy, it's about society. Yeah. It's bigger mm-hmm. like it's bigger than them, you know. Mm-hmm. Um there is another part of that April 16th, 1802 entry that I wanted to share because it was just an accident also that everything I ref- I'm referencing is 1802. Like, it's just it just happened. <laughs> it just I happened. didn't like read this one page like, oh, this is a good year for Dorothy. <laughs> um, so this is from her journal and she says, when I returned, I found William writing a poem descriptive of the sights and sounds we saw and heard. There was the gentle flowing of the stream, the glittering lively lake, green fields without a living creature to be seen on them. Behind us, a flat pasture with 42 cattle feeding. To our left, the road leading to the hamlet. No smoke there. The sun shone on the bare roofs. The people people were at work ploughing, harrowing and sowing. A dog barking now and then, cocks crowing, birds twittering. 
the snow in patches at the top of the highest hills, yellow palms, purple and green twigs on the birches, ashes with their glittering stems quite bare, the hawthorn, a bright green with black stems under the oak, the moss of the oak, glossy. And like, so she sees William. She's describing William writing about their surroundings, sitting at the bridge where she'd left him. And then in her journal, she's noting that and then adding her own recollection of the surroundings to to the description of him doing the same. And it just felt so symbolic of like this symbiotic writing relationship. And as Joanna was saying, like the 200 years that we weren't talking about her work was time wasted. You can't have the one without the other, even in her journal. I just really, I'm like dying to go back to Grassmere now, Lauren. Because like, one, we can see my mum. And like, two, we can eat the gingerbread. And three, we can see Dove Cottage with some furniture in it. And four, Mm -hmm. just look at it, I guess. Yes, please. I am ready to go back to Grassmere as soon as possible. Now, if you'd like to hear more about Dorothy Wordsworth, then do check out our Road Trip Diary Season 4. Point two, episode seven, where we go behind the scenes of Wordsworth Grasmere with assistant curator Poppy Garrett. You can see photos from our visit on our Facebook page. So if you're inclined and haven't already, now would be a good time to follow us on social media. And Hannah, where can our listeners find us on the internets? You can find us, as always, on Instagram and Twitter at Bonnets at Dawn. You can email us, bonnetsatdawn at gmail.com. And you can find us on Facebook by searching for Bonnets at Dawn. Mm-hmm.